Oh, good evening. You're not very friendly, right? Okay, is it my accent? Before I, before I, I start my talk, I'll, I'll let you get used to my accent, right? And I'll tell you a problem that you Americans have. Not that I'm generalizing across cultures, but a problem that you Americans have is uh, you don't understand the Scottish accent, right? So I go into a garage and I say, could I have a bottle of water, please? And the person will say, what? So, could I have a bottle of water, please? And they say, what? So I say, a bottle of water? I go, oh, water! <laughs> so I go into uh, Starbucks, same thing. What's your name? John, I say. And I say, Jose? No, John, I say, Jose? No, I say, uh, John. They go, yeah, John, oh, yeah. <laughs> go, John, John's coffee. <laughs> strange people. Anyway, that's just to get you in the zone. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be here this evening and to be able to talk to you about uh, a number of things that, that, well, I hope you'll be interested in, but hopefully be more than interested in that perhaps will open up some space for rethink. And I think my job tonight is to help people to think how theology contributes to the, the contribution around disability. And how when we begin to think theologically about disability, i.e. simply what it means when we take this human experience and place it before God, when we begin to see, think theologically, a whole range of new possibilities for action and for understanding begin to emerge. So my job is to help you to just think in that way. What does it mean when we take this experience before God? And the way I'm going to do that today, I hope, is to think about the image of God and to think about where we get our images of God from. Because all of us have different ways of understanding God. Some of them are helpful, some of them are unhelpful. But actually, when we begin to think about it, where do we actually get our images of God from? So what we're going to be doing is uh, an exercise in disability theology. Here's a little definition of what disability theology is. Disability theology is the attempt by disabled and non-disabled Christians to understand and interpret the gospel of Jesus Christ, God and humanity against the backdrop of the historical and contemporary experience of people with disabilities. So what disability theology does, it allows the voice of disability in various forms to interact with the tradition. And when that voice, a voice that's really not been part of the construction of the tradition, interacts with the tradition, we discover some really interesting things. Because very often theology is, is constructed in places like Princeton, uh, where people contemplate and think and reflect on, about uh, certain questions that they then put to the tradition. But it's very rare for the questions that emerge from people with, uh, who, who live with disabilities is allowed to interact in that way. And so disability theology brings these questions and says, what does it mean? And the, the answer to that, what does it mean question, can be quite transformative. So today, I'm going to be talking about God, images of God, and tomorrow, I'm going to be talking about time and discipleship, and hopefully, and vocation, and hopefully at the end of that time, we'll all be able to practice a little bit more faithfully. Now, sitting at the heart of disability theology, or sitting at the heart of practical theology, is a particular way of understanding the scriptures, and it's important to think this through before we begin. We, in biblical studies, you can use exegesis to get to the heart of what a piece means. So you use Hebrew and Greek 
uh, to get to the very essence of what the text means, and that's very importantly. Within practical theology, within disability theology, it's slightly different dynamic. We use scripture and tradition to illuminate, to, fresh, to throw fresh light on things that seem to be obvious. And when the light of scripture shines upon the thing that we're trying to illuminate, again, we see things differently. And then when we see things differently, we respond differently. So that idea of illumination is quite interesting. So I'm going to begin here. A few years ago, I wrote a paper which is called The Body of Christ Has Down Syndrome. And in that paper, I narrated a story. And it was from an Irish woman who lives in a large community in Belfast. Lives in large communities of communities where people with uh, intellectual disabilities and people who don't have intellectual disabilities live together in the spirit of friendships of Jesus and the Beatitudes. And she pointed out that when she took people with intellectual disabilities into various churches around Belfast, she was allowed access and that she wasn't allowed at other times. Right? So she was a Southern Island person. This was in Northern Ireland in the times of the, tr the Troubles. And so, but because she had people with intellectual disabilities with her, access was given to her. And sometimes even she, as a, a Southern Island woman, was allowed to speak in a Northern Ireland church. And you have to spend time in Ireland to understand how profound that actually is. Um, but then she said, I sometimes wonder if Jesus had Down syndrome. And that's a really startling question because how you respond to that tells you a lot about what you think God is and what you think the image of God is and what you think the essence of humanness is. Because why should Jesus not have had Down syndrome? Think about the response that you have to that. So people respond in lots of different ways. It's impossible for Jesus to have Down syndrome. It's, it's impossible for Jesus to have something that's not perfect, as, as Amy was talking about. But there is no reason. Why would the image of God not be revealed in all of its fullness in somebody with Down syndrome? So where do we get our images of God from? Carl Barthes, in his thinking around uh, the image of God, points out that actually the image of God is a strange thing in the way that's been constructed in theology. So there's a list of theologians here from different periods in history, and he points out that the cultural assumptions of the day determine the way that the image of God was worked out. So in certain cultures, the soul was, con the soul was considered to be the, the image, rationality was considered to be image, when you get to the Enlightenment, that period in cultural history where we move from a theological understanding of the world to a, a kind of anthropological understanding where human beings are everything and human reason and intellect becomes the primary way in which we make sense of the world. So theologians began to talk about the image of God in these terms. And Bart says, one could indeed discuss which of all these and similar explanations of the term is, is the most beautiful or the most deep or the most serious one cannot, however, discuss which of them is the correct interpretation of Genesis. In other words, the way in which we have been taught to see culture determines the way in which we understand the image of God. And that's profoundly important because we have there's a kind of really strange interaction between culture, which we don't really notice very often, and the way that we construct God, and the way we construct disability, and the way we construct humanness. 
And unless we can stand back from that and see why it is that we think that someone with Down syndrome is, uh, uh, in, the, in the face of Jesus becomes problematic, then we have a real issue. So the, the issue, or the real problem, is one of projection. Right? Do any of you guys know anything about Sigmund Freud? You don't necessarily have to, but this is, this is like uh, Freud 101 I'm going to give you. Right? So Sigmund Freud has this idea of projection. Right? Uh, so he understands, he understands the human mind as like a sea of psychic forces. Right, so you have your heads here, and in there's this sea of psychic forces that's bubbling around, doing all the things that it does. Um, the human beings, Freud says, really don't like anxiety. So we do everything that we can to get away from anxiety. And so when something unpleasant happens to us, we become anxious. So what do we do? We press it down into this psychic sea. So we repress it in that sense. Of course, when it goes down into this psychic sea, because he, he, he understands the brain, or the mind is a hydraulic system, you push it down here, and it pops up here as something else. So you push it down here, and something else comes up. And the, the essence of therapy is to look at that something else and to trace it back to its original roots so that you can kind of understand what the real reason for this is. And projections are a significant part of the way that he thinks about the way humans deal with anxiety. So for Freud... Uh, most of your anxiety comes from broken and damaged relationships with your father, your earthly father in that sense. And so you have all these disappointments that your, your father does to you, you repress them, push them down into the psychic sea, and it pops up over here, he says, as religion. Right? So religion is uh, the kind of counter to the disappointment with your father. So my dad let me down but God will never let me down. My dad's powerful, but God more powerful. My God's loving, but God's much more powerful. And so you get this projection of the anxiety-provoking relationship with your father projected onto a transcendent screen, which Freud then says you need to get therapy for because religion is basically neurosis. It's a form of mental illness. Um, it depends what denomination you are. I'm a Presbyterian. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm very sold, but I also go to a Pentecostal church, and sometimes I have to ask questions about certain things that are said and done. But it's the idea of projection that's important, because we project onto one another the things that trouble us, the things that fear us, the things that we're not sure about. And all the time human beings are creating and constructing and projecting. And unless we notice that, then it can become very dangerous, never mind anything else. So one of the things that you see, for example, in the ongoing conversations around, I don't know, prenatal testing, is that we need to test people for disabilities to prevent suffering. And of course, prevent suffering means to eliminate the human being who's, who hasn't come to full term in that sense. Now, why do we think that, say, for example, somebody with an intellectual disability is suffering? The, the, why do we think somebody with Down syndrome is suffering? Well, we think that because we project onto that individual what it would be like if we were like them. Now, so we project a narrative of loss. It must be terrible because I feel terrible, rather than recognizing a narrative of being. Maybe it's okay just to be in the world in this way. Jean Vanier tells a really interesting story. He says, I was sitting 
and there was a man who was like a lot of people, a bit glum. There was a knock on the door, and before I could say, come in, Jean-Claude walked in. Jean-Claude technically would be Down syndrome, and Jean-Claude shook his hand, shook my hand, and laughed and shook the hand of the other fellow, and laughed, and went out laughing. And the man that had been in my office looked at me and said, oh, isn't that sad, children like that? And I mean, what was sad was that he was totally blind. He didn't see that Jean-Claude was happy. And so even when you see it right in front of your face, you still have the same projection that came out of culture. But we have a similar understanding of a problem with, or issue with projection in relation to the way we create theology. So if you take something like the Trinity, so do you have the Trinity in America, yeah? <laughs> okay, I don't want to get confused, because I can explain to you. <laughs> Maybe that's what God brought me here for. No, but think about the way in which we construct the Trinity. So people are often very keen on the idea of the social Trinity. The idea uh, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are perichoretically interconnected. So they have this kind of ongoing dance of relationality. And it's a very beautiful image, and it's actually a very beautiful doctrine. Uh, and then what we are tempted to do is to say, well, God is like this, so therefore our communities should be like this. Now, a really interesting systematic theologian at Durham called Karen Kilby, who really has given that idea a big push. And she points out that before you can <coughs> really see community in the Trinity, you have to take a social theory to the Trinity. So you have to already have an idea of what community looks like. Because her point is, the Trinity tells us, it's a theology, it tells us about God. It doesn't tell us about human beings. And so if we take a theory saying, oh, this is a beautiful way of community, to be in community, we actually have to take it from somewhere else because it's not meant to describe community in that way. It's meant to describe the person of God. Now, the significance of that in relation to disability is that if we have a kind of warm, romantic understanding of what community is, if that's the way we project our understanding and that's where we shape and form our vision of what community is, then our community is going to be profoundly exclusive. If you think about somebody living with um, autism or profound autism, that warm interperichoretic community is not the way people live their lives. And I don't mean by that that people with autism don't relate. I simply mean that they don't, they don't relate in that way. They have their own ways of relating. Christine Goose, who's a, a, a Mennonite practical theologian, wrote a lovely story about her family. She said, I used to believe that uh, that kind of warm, interrelated community was the only way that we could think about community. Until uh, I started to notice that my family actually had Asperger's syndrome. And she calls it her Asperger's family. And she notices that she could never quite understand why it was that her husband found that kind of warm, communal, romantic way of interacting so difficult. And so what she discovered was that to love him was to make sure there was a good, solid rhythm in the family. But every day he had his sandwiches in the, in the, in the fridge at a particular time. Every day, the, the routines of the day were fixed and formal. 
And that was how she loved her family. She also had two children. Had it. That was how they loved, she loved her family. And that's a very different model of being in community than the kind of romantic idea that we sometimes take and take to and take from the doctrine of the Trinity. But you can see it in church history, you know, the prophets go out in the desert, to, uh, the mystics go out to the desert to try to get away from intellect and reason so they can just love God on their own. There's a multitude of different ways in which we can love. So we need to be very careful that it's not our theories of what we want that we project onto even God and community, but actually what may be there. So theology is important because it shapes and forms what we do and how we understand what we do and how we think about what we do. One of my colleagues, um, who's a minister in the Church of Scotland, he has a young daughter who has uh, Down syndrome. And uh, in her own church, she's really, really involved. So she goes to the girls' brigade, which is kind of a youth club for, for young girls and boys nowadays. She's involved with the worship on Sunday, and she stands up, and she sings, and she does fantastic things. And she's a communicant member of that, that congregation. Now, they as a family came up to Aberdeen a few years ago, and it's unfortunate it was Aberdeen, but it was. Um, and they went along to a local church on the Sunday morning, the last day of their holiday. And it was the day when the sacrament was being uh, shared. And so they, they sat down and got up. And it was, the sacrament went round the church... And when it came to my colleague's daughter, the minister from the pulpit said, don't allow that child to take the sacrament, she'll defile it. Now, needless to say, they left and were tremendously shocked. But think about what the minister's saying. He's, in his own way, trying to be faithful to what Paul says about eating and drinking, or <coughs> uh, judgment on yourself. So Paul says... For those who eat and drink uh, without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Okay, so if you have a certain theological bent, that makes sense. But could you imagine that that's what Paul's intention would be? Could you imagine Paul, who gives us that beautiful picture of the body of Christ, actually wants to exclude people with intellectual disabilities? It's pretty clear that Paul was talking about something quite, quite different and projecting a contemporary understanding of what we, the uh, intellectual understanding of what the gospel means onto a Mediterranean text, and then rejecting a family on the basis of that is, well, in his eyes, faithful, in anybody else's eyes, unusual. And the reason for that is because our culture is deeply implicated in the way that we understand and interpret our theology and our practice. So Stephen Post, who's a very interesting ethicist, he wrote a book called um, Alzheimer's and Morality. And in that he talks about the idea of um, hypercognition. The idea that within Western cultures, we place an inordinate emphasis on intellect and reason over community, love, relationships, family. It's what we know that's important. And you can see it quite clearly in, in your day-to-day -day actions. You meet somebody, uh, you ask them what do they do, and then they tell you what you do, and then you implicitly or explicitly you put them on some kind of hierarchy. And so if you're a doctor up here, if you're a 
university professor, you're probably down there. But if you're me, Thank you. <laughs> I was, well, I was I know I was practicing. Uh, yeah, well, I was practicing my humility, and I'm really very good at it now. <laughs> exactly. So that makes it highly problematic in word-oriented theologies to incorporate people who don't use words as a first mode of communication. So within my tradition, salvation comes through words, uh, worship comes through words, sanctification comes through words. What do you do if you don't have words? And that's where that kind of issue is raised. Uh, but it seems to me, if you shine the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ onto that situation and think that the God who is love and who gives love and who is redeeming the world is going to exclude somebody on the basis that they don't have the right kind of words, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But culturally, it does make a lot of sense. So how much do we have to know in order to love Jesus? How much is enough or too little? And which one of us would want to set that threshold? It's an important question because how do we, how do we make that decision? As soon as you begin to ask these questions, uh, how much do you have to know, the question becomes unusual. But the idea of projection also functions quite, in quite interesting ways in relation to uh, theology or disability. This lady here, some of you will be familiar with, is Nancy Eastland. Nancy Eastland is kind of uh, one of the pioneers of disability theology. And she had a significant uh, disability herself. And her book, The Disabled God, has become a fundamental text in relation to disability. And so what she's, she's noticed, she notices the, <coughs> the kind of projection that I'm talking to you about. But she notices that uh, the contemporary church uh, tends not to have symbols and ideas and concepts about who God is that incorporate uh, people with disabilities or people with certain forms of disability. She's only talking in this case about physical disabilities. And at the beginning of the book, she says that quite clearly. And so she says, I want to re-symbolize God. I want to think of different ways of imagining God. And if we have different ways of imagining God, then we can see things differently. And her epiphany comes when she uh, encounters an African-American gentleman in a sit-puff wheelchair. It runs like this. My epiphany bore little resemblance to the God I was expecting or the God of my dreams. I saw God in a sit-puff wheelchair. That is, the chair used mostly for my quadriplegics, enabling him to maneuver by, by blowing and sucking on a straw-like device. Not an omnipotent, self-sufficient God, but neither a pitiable suffering servant in this movement, I beheld God as a survivor, unpitying and forthright. I recognized the incarnate Christ in the, in the image of those judged not feasible, unemployable, with questionable quality of life. Here was God from me. And she goes on to develop, to, to explore uh, the resurrection story in, in Luke, where Thomas is asked to put his hands in Jesus' side. Uh, her point being, that this is the resurrected Jesus who still carries the wounds. So therefore, perfection in the way that we create it culturally is probably deeply flawed and deeply challenged by the presence of the wounds of Jesus. Now, again, think about it. What's she doing? She's projecting a different image of God from her position as a person with a disability. 
The problem might be, if you want to think this through, that Jesus was actually more able after the resurrection. So the question that I put to you to think about, and it, it actually it's, it's, there's two ways to think about it. When we talk about the disabled God, is it a metaphor? Is it something that we, we, we use to try to raise issues, raise consciousnesses to things? Or is it a simile? Is it something that says God is disabled? Now, one of the confusions we have, particularly for those of you who are studying disability theology, is that we haven't quite teased that out, whether it's a metaphor or whether it's a simile. And the problem would be, because Nancy Eastland is thinking specifically about physical disabilities, then intellectual disabilities and mental health challenges fall out of that image. They need a different image. So just for those of you who are interested in contemplating there's some interesting questions there. My point is that projection works on both sides. That we're always constructing our images of God. The question is how, how accurate are these uh, constructions? So what I want to do now is to begin to think about what happens when we shine that illuminating light of Scripture onto these situations. Karl Barth talks about the Bible as a strange new world. He talks about the strange new world within the Bible. And by that he means that uh, the Bible is not a place that we just go for ideas and concepts and rules and regulations. Actually, when we enter into Scripture, we discover that these are our stories. When we listen to the stories of Abraham and Moses and Jesus, these are our stories. And when we recognize that, when we are formed by that strange new world within the Bible, and we look out at the old world, then it looks completely different. Nothing has changed, but our minds have been renewed, and we look out and we see things differently. And it's that idea of renewal and reprojecting our understandings of God I want us to think about, because it's profoundly important in relation to how we understand the position of people with disabilities within the coming kingdom of God. So the Bible transforms our mind, as Paul puts it. And that's really, really important, because central to the ways in which we make sense of the world is our imagination. You know, sometimes we think about imagination as, you know, like fantasy or just something that goes on in your head, but no, imagination is fundamentally important. You could not cross a road safely without having a certain kind of imagination. So your imagination contains the ideas, the concepts, the methodologies, the plausibility structures within which we make sense of the world. And plausibility structures just means that some things are plausible, some things are not plausible because of the way that we understand the, the world. And so, <clears throat> to give you an example, the kind of philosophy that underpins uh, Western scientific thinking is based on empiricism, right? So empiricism means that that which falls upon the retina of the eye is that which is true, right? So that which you can see and feel and touch. So something like a randomized control trial is a good example of, of empirical thinking. But empiricism is a philosophical system. You've got to believe in the system before you can accept it. So there's no empirical evidence for empiricism. And yet we, th we all assume that that's the way the world is. So if somebody comes in and says, oh, there's an invisible God out there, it sounds ridiculous. But only because that particular way of looking at things, that philosophical system, has so shaped and formed us that the idea of the invisible God seems ridiculous. But it's not. It may all be our worldview that's ridiculous. So transforming our mind for the refle reflection on the illuminating 
light of Scripture. First thing to notice is that God chooses disabled bodies to carry out the key tasks within the coming kingdom. That's really, really important. For example, with Moses. Now, Moses, um, it's a fascinating encounter Moses has with God in Exodus 4. Um, God chooses Moses for one of the most powerful and important vocations that we can imagine, to lead the people of Israel into the desert and into freedom. So Moses has this terrible stutter. And so he, he goes to, to God and says, I can't do this. I can't fulfill my vocation because I've got this terrible stutter. And what does God say? Does God uh, heal him and then send him out? No, he says, do what you're told and I'll get people to help you. And more than that, and this is, this, is the, this is one of the mysterious things. I was talking to the guys in class the other day. God then says, who makes blind people blind? Who makes mute people mute? Who causes these things that in the world? <coughs> in other words, he says, I am deeply implicated in my experiences of disability. So if anybody says to you, you know, you can only participate if you're healed, then tell them to read the Bible. If anybody says to you that this is a product of sin or evil, tell them to read the Bible. Because if, if it's a, a product of sin or evil, then God's right in the middle of it, and that makes no sense whatsoever. So Moses is given this vocation and sent out into the world. The Apostle Paul, you see, it's a very similar dynamic. So but Paul has this thing called, he calls a thorn in his flesh. Now, nobody really knows what it is. Some people think it's backache. backache. Some people think it's blindness. Some people think it's, uh, it's epilepsy. There's all sorts of theories. Either way, he didn't want it, right? So he prays three times, and God just doesn't do the thing. Now, I imagine that Paul, who's the most powerful uh, missionary that we know of, who constantly calls us to pray, wasn't suffering from a lack of faith. Something else is going on. And what goes on, Paul, God says, it's in your weakness, it's in your brokenness, it's in your difference that I find healing and power. And sends him off to do his uh, will in the world, to carry out a fantastic vocation. And Paul, in his graciously says, okay, I'm going to do that. And then, of course, a disabled body is the source of our salvation. It's in the wounds of Jesus and the brokenness of Jesus that we discover who we are and what our salvation means. This is an interesting picture. I don't know if you've ever seen it before. It's by a German uh, artist called Matthias Grunwald. And it's, it's a part of a triptych that's sat in a plague hospital or plague hospice in Germany. And if you get in close, you can't see it in this picture. What you'll see is the body of Jesus is pockmarked with the uh, marks of the plague. And Grunwald just wants this to emphasize that God is implicated in everything that human beings do. And what's interesting about this, this picture's hands is uh, if you look at some of the, the, the kind of medieval paintings, the hands of Jesus are always placid. They're always like this. What you see here is agony. Jesus' hands contorted with pain. And what he wants to push into that, in the midst, in this case, of, of the plague and the suffering of the plague, there is Jesus. 
There's something very, very important. Jesus is implicated in everything that all of us do. My point is not that disability is suffering. My point is that the social location of Jesus is within us in the midst of our differences, in the midst of the way that we experience the world. And Paul promises that nothing can separate us from that love. So one way in which we can begin to pull things together a little bit is to think about the nature of our bodies. You know, sometimes our bodies, we don't really think much of our body until something goes wrong, and then we, we can think about nothing else. But this, so pain's a good example of that. I'll talk about pain tomorrow. But think about what your body is. And think about the diversity of bodies that there are even in this room. And think about the soulfulness of bodies. If we go through the Genesis account of creation, uh, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. St. Augustine <coughs> describes human beings as terra animata, animated death, an animated earth, that we only exist because the breath of God is blown into us. One of the things that's terrifying for, for the psalmist and the psalms of lament is that God will take his spirit away. If God takes his spirit away, then he is nothing. Human beings have thus seem to be created from matter, but inspired, given breath, brought into living existence by the very breath of God. We are bodies as we are our souls. Now what you want to notice in that passage is there's nothing about conformity or normality. Everybody is holy brought into existence by the breath of God and sustained by the very breath of God. All human encounters are holy moments. As earth animated by the breath of God, human beings are said to be holy creatures living amongst other holy creatures in a world that is holy, as Wendell Berry puts it. Everybody is holy. Now think about what it would look like if we translated that into the way that we see one another, that we look at one another as holy creatures, that we put to one side this whole conversation about this is a disabled body, this is an able body, look at one another as creatures created bodily by Jesus, by God rather, <coughs> to, to do the things of God, and then everything changes. If you're a holy creature in a holy world held by a holy God, then you can't look at your brother and sister and judge them or think that they should be a bit closer to what you look like. You can only look in awe and wonder at the diversity of human bodies. Attending to God's creatures is in fact a mode of attending to God. So as we love one another, so we love God. We are our bodies as we are our souls. Oh. And that last picture, of course, is this sign language for love. 
And it's in that love for one another that we encounter one another faithfully. This is how I'd like us to think. Let's see if this makes any sense to you. And I'll tell you this through a story. John Hull, who's a really interesting uh, uh, British practical theologian or educationalist, who sadly died a couple of years ago. In a book called Touching the Rock, in a series of articles, he describes his experience of going blind when he was in his early 50s. And so it's a, he gives what he describes as a phenomenology of blindness, what it feels like, not to explain what it is, but what it feels like, what that experience is like to lose your sight, to be able not to be able to see your children again, not to be able to see your uh, wife again. And he, really, it's a very interesting way he puts it. But this is, how he, this is how one way in which he describes things. He says, when he first became blind, he felt a movement inwards. And so sighted people look out all the time and see things. And so you have basic dynamic of outward lookingness. But when he was no longer going to do that, he was trapped, as he put it, in his inner self. And he found that really, really difficult because everything that he had used to make sense of the world, he was no longer able to do so. And he said, it, it wasn't until I discovered that actually the world of blindness was a world. It was a way of being in the world. The world of sightedness was a way of being in the world. It was a world. And it was only when he recognized that, that actually maybe this is not all lamentation. Maybe there's something that I can learn about being human. When he began to get to that stage, he moved back outwards. But his outward movement was quite, quite different from before. So his hands now became uh, things that he felt and sensed the world. So he could no longer see his children's face, but his hand became the organs of sensitization to what it, his, his, his uh, children felt like, what, they, what that touch was like. Hearing became different because when you hear a noise, uh, you tend to look towards it. You take that out, and it's a completely different experience. Colors disappear, because how do you describe the color green? Well, they didn't disappear, they just changed. When you try to describe red or green or yellow or purple, it becomes something else. And what he concluded was that, actually, this is not a bad way of being in the world. It's just a way of being human in the world. It says that the temptation for sighted people is to colonize humanness. And so if somebody begins to lose their sight, then we do everything through rehabilitation to make sure that they're just like us. And he, he, he points out that that's the same kind of movement towards colonization, as if that's the only way that we can be human, when we have perfect sight, when we have perfect teeth, when we have perfect whatever it is. And his conclusion is that being human is a broad range of possibilities. There are a number of various different ways that we can become human. And it's only when we listen carefully to these different ways of being human that we can really understand what it means to be a human being. So what does it mean to encounter God if you have severe Alzheimer's disease? What does it mean to encounter God without memory? And why would that be a terrible thing? What does it mean to engage in um, a holy cuddle if you don't have any arms? 
It simply means it's something different. So he, he points out all of these things that actually, if we minimize them, we miss the blessing. It's only when we optimize the full range of human potential that things begin to get good. So sharing the joy and the diversity within the body of Christ. Because what Hull concludes really is what Paul says about the body of Christ. That all of us matter. All of us have something to contribute. None of us are abnormal. We're all different. And it's diversity that makes up the body of Christ, not normality. So the idea that we're all moving towards a single norm just doesn't make scriptural sense, doesn't make philosophical sense, and doesn't make material sense. So, this is a finish. To go back to my first question, who is normal? Well, Paul says the image of God is something we live into as we live into Jesus. Paul says Jesus is the image of God. So the image of God is something we live into as we live into Jesus, the one true image of God. And Bruce McCormack, who from this final, uh, institution, puts it this way. The doctrine of the image of God has been badly misused throughout the history of Christian theology. It's been made to answer the wrong questions. It's been made to answer the question of what gives human beings significance, which quickly turns into what makes us different from animals. Now that's a very dangerous game to play because those who study the higher forms of primate life are eroding those differences left, right and centre. I think one of the things we may learn from that is that the Imago Dei is a doctrine about what makes us like God, not what makes us different from the rest of creation and from one another in the midst of that. And because that's the case, you're not going to be able to describe it phenomenologically or metaphysically. I think you have to describe it Christological in relation to Jesus. You're not describing it in terms of some set of properties, intellect, memory, will, whatever you're not doing it that way. What I think the Imago Dei is, at the end of the day, is holiness. It's holiness rooted in canotic self-giving love. Leviticus 19.2 says, I, the Lord your God, am a holy God. You shall be a holy people. To be in relationship with this, God is to be holy. What does this look like? It has to be in conformity of our lived experience in this world to Jesus' own. To his life of perfect obedience, it's about correspondence to him. It's about holiness. And as I say, it's a holiness that arises out of canotic, self-giving love. That's the image. That's how Christ is. So the only norm that we have is Jesus. Jesus who, whose body, the church, Paul says, makes up. It's the diversity of the body of Christ that gives us the experience of who Jesus is. So who is normal? Jesus. What is normal? Diversity. What is beautiful is the holiness that we encounter as we engage with the body of Christ, as we engage with the Holy Spirit, as we are transformed and brought into a true community within which weak, strong, old, young, disabled, able-bodied are all just people. And we'll talk about that more fully tomorrow when I talk about discipleship. But for now, it seems to me very obvious, if we allow the light of Scripture to shine, then it's holiness and love and a certain type of community that gives us our strength and our vision. So living into Jesus, everybody has a place. Paul says, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? Now, the dark side of that is that if all of you are not together, 
then the body of Christ is wounded. And for those of us who see that, that's a vocational task. So one more thing. No, no more things. I've changed my mind. <laughs> one more thing for tomorrow. So that's what I want you to think about. The, the, the beauty of difference, the holiness of bodies, and the possibility that if we capture that vision, we can transform the world through that the, the, the small but vital reframing, refiguring gestures of the church. Thank you for listening.